0: It is the LDS Life Podcast at exactly 2 p.m. on Tuesday, May 28th, 2019. I'm Kevin Williams. We, I know I have not done a podcast in a while. I've, done, I've been very busy. I am trying to find a new day job. Unfortunately, I do not make money at this podcast, but I keep it up and running because I have enough of a following out there. Uh, but unfortunately, I do not make a living off of this yet, and I have to find a day job. But I am still broadcasting here in Billings, Montana, and Robert Brown is my guest uh, this afternoon. How are you, Robert?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: yeah, absolutely. i've uh, actually, I have done a lot of research about you, and we'll get into this later. I actually well, I was intrigued by you because I heard about you back in two thousand and fourteen. I heard about you, and you were a member of the Town Birch Society, and you homeschooled your kids, and that really interested me, because down in southern Utah, as you know, there's a lot of people like that, and I found it intriguing, so I'm glad to have you on. Um, let's go ahead and uh, start out with this question, uh, since this is an LDS Life <laughs> podcast. Uh, do you have any Pioneer stock?
1: I have quite a bit of it, actually, yes. Really? <laughs> Yeah, some of my ancestry goes back to um, quite a few of the early church members, early pioneers, that kind of thing.
0: Wow. Is it uh, the Browns or is someone else? No, no. Um,
1: wow, I'm drawing a blank of the, the family names now. Oh. Uh, Newell Knight in particular is a direct ancestor of mine.
0: Who? Oh, Newell Knight?
1: Newell Knight, yes.
0: Oh, yeah, I know some people that are, you might be related to some uh, knights in Boise that I know. Yeah. um, All right. Well, I have a little bit of pioneer stock in me as well. Uh, Well, uh, let's speaking of pioneer stock. uh, So let's go ahead and talk about your childhood for a few minutes. Uh, Anything. I guess you were born and raised in uh, in, uh, Utah.
1: Yes, that's correct. Uh, Originally from Provo, Utah. My father was a professor at BYU. So I grew up in that community.
0: Okay, and then uh, how did you get to Montana?
1: (laughs) Really, I I took a job with the John Birch Society back in 2009 uh, to be the coordinator for the state of Montana for the John Birch Society.
0: Okay, and uh, how do you like it up here? Oh,
1: I love it, especially this time of year. It's just so beautiful. Everything's green and lush, and it's just really lovely. Of course, t- I, I really enjoy the, the outdoors and things of that nature, so uh, oh. Montana has a lot to offer. Do you think you'll miss it? I do. I do. I, I won't be totally away from it either. It's somewhere that I'm, I definitely have some permanent roots that we'll be continuing to come back to. Oh, okay.
0: So uh, you went to college to get an engineering degree. Yes, that's correct. And then, so how did you get introduced to the John Birch Society and uh, just uh, take us where you're at today here, to where you're at today? Sure. You
1: know, the, the origin story really begins when I lived in Caldwell, Idaho, and a friend and neighbor of mine invited me to a class on the U.S. Constitution, which he informed me would be held in my living room.
0: Oh my, sounds like a hidden agenda.
1: Yes. And so I attended, of course. It was going to happen in my house. I better be there. And uh, he had previously arranged this with my wife, just for the record. But uh, Mm -hmm. that course was life-changing in in a few ways. Number one, it helped awaken in me an understanding of the Constitution and how far off track we are from it. Mm -hmm. And number two, more importantly, if we were to be following the Constitution as written, as intended... It helped me understand it would solve the majority of the major problems our nation is facing today, including our national debt, war issues, and things like that. So many of the major problems our nation is facing are because we are not following the Constitution as written, as intended. And so that created in me a passion to help do what I can to get us back to that. And the main thing I concluded as to why, why we are in this situation is very simple. I always put it this way, Washington, D.C. does not play by the rules because we, the people, don't know the rules. We, the people, are supposed to be the guardians of the Constitution. We're supposed to be the ones that enforce it ultimately. And we can't enforce the Constitution if we have no idea of what's in it. And so that got me heading down the path of learning it as much as I could and then in turn spreading that knowledge, teaching it as far and wide as I can where today I've produced a six-lecture course on the Constitution for the John Birch Society, which can be viewed free online if you go to YouTube and just look up The Constitution is the Solution. You'll see a six-lecture playlist. You can also purchase those videos through the John Birch Society directly, which includes a more complete course, includes a course workbook, class handouts and instructions and things like that. That's one thing, and then I also do frequent traveling around the country, giving lectures on the Constitution, also teaching about some of the dangers and threats to it. And so, like yourself with your radio show here, this is not a money-making venture, but it's something that I feel a passion for and a great need for in the community. And so I take time away from work to teach the Constitution, to travel and give speeches across the country, and so on, because it's so needed. And I've had the, the great pleasure of hearing from hundreds of people across the country of what they've gained from these teachings, what they've gained from me making this time to do this. So many times where people have just felt the Constitution come alive for them. Uh, one lawyer, in pa- in fact, a constitutional lawyer said that he learned more about the the real meaning of the Constitution from two of my lectures than from his entire years of studying constitutional law in law school. And so a lot of great um, accolades, a lot of people thanking me for this helps continue the process, helps me feel like this is worth my time to take away from time away from my family and from work to go spread the understanding of the Constitution. Because the better we understand it, the better we can enforce it.
0: Where in the, so when you go and speak, do you speak mostly to John Birchers or how does that work?
1: Two different ways. Oftentimes a local John Birch Society chapter will organize a public event and then hire me, contract with me to come out there and and speak for them. In other cases, other liberty-minded groups have often contracted with me to come speak for their organizations as well. So it's kind of that open invitation either way, whether it's through John Burke Society Groups or through other organizations. I've spoken for many of both types.
0: Now, where do you, have you spoken, have you been to every state in the country to speak? What states do you go to the most? (laughs) I've I've gone all over. Um, I have not done anything
1: up in Alaska or Hawaii, although I welcome the invitation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And well, I want to I be
0: careful going to uh, uh, Fairbanks in the winter, but that's a touchy subject.
1: Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I haven't done much on the um, I haven't done much on the uh, east or on the west coast. I've hit the east coast quite a bit, um, but California, Oregon, and uh, Washington I've not gone to yet. But most of the other states I've spoken in.
0: What state do you find that you get the most reception?
1: You know, that varies a lot. One of the largest groups I've ever spoken to was in New York. It was in oh. Albany, and it was about 400 people there. And very, very well received as well. I taught just a basic introduction to the Constitution, had kind of a live question-answer as we taught. So it was kind of a discussion presentation. And it went very well. went very well. Um, oh, good. The groups I speak to vary from a few dozen to a few hundred. I've never spoken to coliseums of thousands yet.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, you wonder if some of these college campuses let you on anymore, wouldn't, don't you?
1: Yes. There are some that will. There are some that I think would probably chase me out. I've even spoken to a few high schools, public schools. And really? We'll probably be doing that again in September. looks like I'll be lined up to do another high school presentation. Where at? Uh, this was... This is going to be in uh, Broadus, Montana, which is about as close to South Dakota and Wyoming you can get while still being in Montana.
0: <laughs> yeah, weren't you the uh, coordinator for the Jumbert Society in Wyoming and uh, South Dakota, too? As, as yeah, that well. was
1: actually, that's a, actually a different title. That's called a regional field director, at which oh. point I was supervisor of the coordinators for North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana. So I did over oh, okay. four states at that time as well.
0: Okay. And uh, just out of curiosity, what made you quit that? Uh, just too busy? Or obviously you're still speaking. Yes. Really, and, and
1: my hat is off to all the, the people that do continue in, in being a coordinator for the John Birch Society. It's a, a fabulous job. I absolutely love the job. But it also had me traveling typically every Tuesday to th- through Friday, oh. every week. And I did that for about eight years and it really takes a toll. I have a large family and my family was really needing the dad home a lot more than that.
0: Yeah. I, I want to get into uh, the fact that you have 12 kids and homeschool your kids. And then we'll get right back into uh, some topics here with the John Birch society. Um, You, when I first heard that you had 12 kids, I thought, sounds like a family from the Great Depression. Do you get that? What kind of a reaction do you get when you speak to people <laughs> and they find out you have 12 kids? Do they start lecturing you about zero population? How's the reaction?
1: I, I've never had that, actually. I've never had anyone scolding me or anything of that nature. A lot of people just saying things like, wow, that's amazing. Sometimes people saying, I wish we had had more. We, in my really? Youth- we felt like we only wanted two or three, and now I wish we had gotten beyond that. I I never hear people th- saying, I had six kids, and I wish I didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or well, I like um, wish I could put a few of them back or whatever. but
0: <laughs> you, you certainly can't say uh, one of your daughters was promised that she could come down to earth, and somebody, the brother, didn't keep the promise, can you? Right, right. <laughs> That's a Saturday's Warrior reference there.
1: Yes, exactly. So really with that perspective, I came from a large family, 10 children in my family. My wife came from a family of eight children. And we both really loved having siblings that were also oftentimes our best friends and that type of thing. And that's been the family dynamic in my own family as well, especially because we're homeschooling. They're together all the time. Mm -hmm. They learn to work together and share with each other and and that type of thing. So the family dynamics are really fun. yeah. Probably to a test a year ago. Because <laughs> a year ago, we spent a month traveling on a speech tour in a large uh, Class A motorhome.: Oh, all 12 children, and my wife and I went all the way out to Virginia and then down the east coast to Florida and then back up through the South, doing s- stops along the way, giving speeches. We spent a full month living in the motorhome like that, and came back wanting more.
0: <laughs> I have to ask you uh with 12 kids what did you eat because you couldn't go out to nice restaurants and what what did you eat
1: well because we lived in a motor home we just cooked our own meals like we always do okay. my wife is a fabulous cook she's very um ingenuitive with whatever resources you have she can make a great meal out of it what's for and dinner so, tonight
0: you know i don't know yet oh <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the technology is not such that you can uh, give me dinner through the internet yet.
1: Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) But she did bring a lot of her reserves. She had a big five-gallon bucket of wheat that we could grind into things as we traveled, and that kind of thing as well. Um, So a lot of those stores were in the storage compartments of the motorhome. Wow. It was was fabulous. We had a few, few places where the hosts of my local speeches would say, and while we're here, we want to treat your entire family to dinner at this local restaurant. And I oh, my gosh. With, you do know how many there are, right? <laughs> you're, wow. You know what you're getting into. And, and several times we had that happen where they'd treat the entire family to, uh, to dinner, which was wow. which was fabulous. People tend to be very appreciative and very generous as we're out there spending our time trying to help spread the, the news of the uh, principles of liberty and the Constitution.
0: Well, I would think, uh, here in Montana, there's a lot of homeschoolers, aren't there? I've heard that anyway. Yeah, there are, there are, I've, I've met quite a few.
1: We've at times had, um, kind of co-op groups with other homeschoolers and that type of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, many of them are, are religious based groups, Christian based groups and that type of thing. And, uh. And yet they tend to accept people of all denominations. So we've had a lot of fun with that as well.
0: Do you do, uh, I want to get back to the constitution here, but I I have to ask you because homeschooling has intrigued me. Um, I was never homeschooled, although my mom said, and she's probably right that she feels like she homeschooled me quite a bit as a kid. That's probably true because she would stay up late at night till about 11 o'clock at night, making sure I did my homework because I hated doing homework and I was one of those kids, I would laugh really hard when something just random came up, and it would really frustrate my mom, so I made it a lot harder on her than it should have been. <laughs> my mom made sure, that I at least knew how to read Boyle well and all that. I'm not the fastest reader, but I know how to read it thanks to my mom, and she actually told me once, uh, she came really close to homeschooling me when I was in uh, second grade or in third grade. Um, that would have been interesting, but, um, how do you, do you do the homeschooling online? Do you follow, I, I assume you're familiar with uh, Oliver DeMille. You must be. Oh yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, do you follow his uh, model of education? Do you modify it? How, how do you do it?
1: We, we really kind of do our own where we we pick and choose what we've have found to be some of the best sources for math teaching or history or whatever it may be. So it's been a real just compilation based on what we found. But on on the question of uh, homeschooling in general, with you being, really, you you really were homeschooled. And the point I want to put is a great perspective. A friend of mine who's an Idaho state legislator said it this way. All successful students are homeschooled students, whether or not they're involved in the public school education system. His point being... It's the involvement of parents in the education of the child that's the essential ingredient in the success of a child, whether or not they're part of the public school system. And you clearly, as you were talking about that, your mother had a, a strong role in your schooling. You, you were home. Oh, yeah. Even though you also went to a regular public school.
0: Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, she used to say, Kevin, do you have homework? I said, of course I have homework. The question you should ask, what do I have? And then, Uh, but you're right. Uh, Now, of course, as I got older and technology increased, I didn't need her as much to help me with homework. I was able to do a lot of it on my own, but you're right. Um, Growing up and all that, uh, I think uh, this legislature, this friend of yours is onto something.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, So back, let's get back to the John Birch society. I've been reading a little bit about it. I understand there was, I guess there was a movement to nationalize the, I didn't know this, there was a movement to nationalize the police force in 1982, and then the John Birch Society stopped it. Do you know much about this?
1: That is before my time with working with them, but I do know a fair amount about it. The, uh, this concept of nationalizing the police, making police report to the federal government rather than to the communities they serve is really the, the gist behind it. And it doesn't take much of an imagination that when the police no longer are responsible to their local citizens, but instead they're responsible to the federal government, what a difference that would make in how they treat the people. That they're no longer responsible to you and me, but to the federal government, they're more likely to be the ones that enforce dictates of the federal government rather than protecting our rights locally. So the John Birch Society felt that was a serious threat to our liberty to end up having a national police force that enforces the dictates of the federal government. And so, yes, they were successful in stopping that. Then it's a, it's a movement that is again happening today. And so the John Birch society has relaunched their support your local police and keep them independent.
0: Absolutely. I I can agree with that. Um, yeah, another, what else is the John Birch society be instrumental in? Because honestly, I heard about the John Birch Society when I was 18 years old at uh, in sacrament meeting of all places. <laughs> and uh, President Benson was in charge of it. And so I started asking people that were much older than me that actually cared about politics because I knew if I asked people my age group, they wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about. And I got mixed reactions. Some would cringe at me. Some would say oh it's like anything else is good and bad and never really had anybody endorse it to me now I think I've actually met people that were in it but didn't tell me they were in it for probably obvious reasons uh, but what else have the I so I, I I'm actually just because I hear so little about it I'm surprised that it's still around Yeah.
1: Um, Well, the John Birch Society has always been one that works very vigorously behind the scenes in various political issues. A lot of the political discussion and discourse today is based on things that the John Birch Society has been working on for years. Uh, The whole deep state concept is something they have been exposing for decades, for example. Um, One that's really a key notable victory for the John Birch Society, though, was that back under President George W. Bush... He signed an agreement with the President of Mexico and the Prime Minister of Canada that was an agreement to, by January 31st, 2010, no longer have any borders between the three nations, but instead be securing the perimeter of North America and form a true North American Union like the European Union. And that was not widely publicly known that they had actually set a date and agenda to move our nations into a full union by January of
0: 2010. I'm, I, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because I read something where they were thinking about, I guess the John Burt Society supposedly stopped it. Something similar to that in 2005. Yes. Uh, but then what happened? Because I, I distinctively remember Glenn Beck talking about how they are going to create a NAFTA superhighway yes. from Mexico to, North, to Canada. When I first heard this, I thought, oh, geez, this is another conspiracy. But then I heard about it on NBC Nightly News, of all things, and I thought, oh, this might be bigger than I thought. So uh, what happened? Because I, I read that they stopped something like that in 2005 2006. They were talking about it again. What happened?
1: Yes, and that is, that. that's all part of the history that actually we did uncover and expose. The real thing that happened, though, that stopped this whole North American Union and the NAFTA superhighway and all that was a concerted effort across the entire nation to expose it. In fact, one of the things that the John Birch Society organization did was they published a special edition of their magazine, which is called The New American. Yep. Good special. web
0: source, by the way. I've been going yeah. to that.
1: Yeah, the new excellent resource. Yeah, so they published a special edition of this magazine that exposed all the details with plenty of documentation to prove it of what the plans were for this North American Union and what the purpose of this NAFTA superhighway was and they even showed some of the Some of the preliminary maps that had been laid out by some of these people and They then sent out to all their membership across the country. We have a goal to get a million copies of this magazine into the hands of your political leaders, local and state and federal. Get them to your congressman, get them to your governor, to your state legislators, to your city councilmen. They ended up tracking 1.2 million actually got distributed. So they exceeded the goal. And that created so much public awareness of this threat of a North American union, the loss of our sovereignty as a nation, the loss of our ability to call our own shots that it really put the brakes on the whole thing. They had to abandon it. In fact, the primary architect of this North American Union, his name was Robert Pastor. He, a few years later, directly attributed the John Birch Society as the reason why they didn't achieve his goals of this North American Union. So I'm curious. So, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so sometimes some of the best,
0: best compliments come from your political opponents. <laughs> How did Glenn Beck find out about this? Because as far as I know, he was the only national talk show talking about it. You know,
1: Lou Dobbs also covered it quite well. But both of them, as you watch them, when they started exposing some of those things, it was as if they were reading the New American Magazine without saying so. Because their talking points were just straight out of it. And so I'm sure they're watching some of those news sources like the New American Magazine because that's, been prior to them exposing it more nationally the new american was the only one covering it for quite a while
0: how did tom brokaw expose it? no no brian i think it was brian i don't know who was brian williams how did what made him expose it i was surprised that nbc exposed it
1: you know i don't i don't have as much of the history on that one that one was an interesting one but uh, <laughs> i remember him getting i hate there.
0: to say this but uh I didn't believe anything about it until NBC exposed it. And I thought, Oh, Glenn Beck was right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The the thing it comes down to and the John Burke society always relies on is documentation. Mm -hmm. That when you see citations with references to here's this document, you can go pull it up online and research it for yourself. That's important. It's important to know that there are the references and to even check the references. That's, one of my biggest themes is checking references, making sure that people understand this is provable. You can find out for yourself.
0: Sure, Um, I was, yeah. So, when you distribute these uh, pamphlets out to people, uh, I have never been approached by a John Bircher telling me, here's a pamphlet. You might want to check this out. Where are you distributing? No one's ever come up to me saying, here's a pamphlet. You ought to read it. Of course, I'd have to scan it into my computer, which is fine. You there?
1: Yes. Oh. Yes, still here. Yeah, generally what they're doing is they're targeting specific people for distribution. Um, like, like the North American Union edition of the New American, that was specifically targeted to civic leaders. We're looking for the political leaders in the community, the state, and national level. And so that was the, the main target audience for those. In some cases, we will canvass um, neighborhoods or, or even whole communities on other things, one of my favorite to do with that one is the voting records of Congress as compared to the Constitution. It's called the Freedom Index. And I, frankly, that's one of my missions is to try to get more of that happening because the more the voting records of Congress becomes public knowledge, the more Congress tends to obey the Constitution. In fact, we did that a number of years ago in Montana when Denny Reeberg was our Congressman. Starting 2009, we started doing mass distributions of his voting record across the state And his voting record went from following the Constitution 50 to 60% of the time to within just a few months, he was at 80 to 90% and began referencing us as his conscience and thanking us for keeping him on track and so on. Because we were constantly publishing his voting record, making sure it got out to the hands of the public here.
0: Oh, wow. Now, I had somebody on my show, and I do want to get to something else, but I did have someone on my show. Oh gosh! Back in 2018, who is with the Americans of Prosperity? I'm sure you've heard of them. You might actually know, yes. and I can mention her name. She was on the podcast, Joni Bills. Do you know Joni Bills?
1: I don't. I don't recognize that name. No.
0: Okay. Well, uh, we got acquainted because she actually came to my doorstep randomly, just like a missionary or something would. And I happen to be a little smart, uh, just you know, being blind. You have to be careful about. Hi, I'm so-and-so, uh, because I can't see their looks or anything like that. So when I opened up the door, I was alone, and she said, "Oh, I'm here to talk to you about uh, this tax that's going in that might be happening in Utah, And I automatically said, "Are you with the Americans' of prosperity?" And she said, "Yes, I am. In fact, I know you and come to find out it was true." Um, I just wonder if they are more effective doing the door-to-door approach because, like I said, I've never been approached by a John Bircher ever as far as you got to check this out or whatever. Uh,
1: that's that's a good question. As you were mentioning before, in many cases, uh, members of the John Birch Society aren't running around saying, I'm a member of the John Birch Society, here's some things I want no, to share with you.
0: and probably rightfully so in some cases. Right.
1: And and there's some interesting history behind that as well. The yeah. the whole smear campaign against the John Birch Society, they, they started in 1958, and the smear campaign began just a, two or three years later.
0: I heard about that, yes. Uh, in fact, Ezra Taff Benson spoke about that.
1: Yes, yes, he did. Yeah. And... One of the interesting things was the John Birch Society was being labeled as un-American, subversive even, and of course racist, anti-Semitic, and whatever else. And this led to the John Birch Society leadership saying, if we're really this subversive, anti-American organization, investigate us, bring us up on charges. And finally, the California Senate took them up on that, and, and they sponsored a private investigation into the John Birch Society. And what they uncovered was, in their own words, the John Birch Society seems to be probably the most patriotic organization in our country today. And so it was a very vindicating report that their investigation produced. So why of did course, the mainstream media kept the attacks going, but they didn't bring up the
0: vindication when that came out? So why did uh, William Buckley turn against you? Because the way I understood when I read about the John Birch Society, he was for you in the beginning. What happened? William Buckley was
1: someone that we would strongly politically oppose because he was a neoconservative. In fact, there's a book written by John F. McManus, the former president of the John Birch Society. It's called William F. Buckley, Pied Piper for the Establishment which is extremely well-documenting of William Buckley's what I would consider subversive goals and, and efforts because he was very neoconservative, which is nothing to do with true constitutional conservatism.
0: Yeah, basically, for those that don't know, neoconservative means, oh, I'm just going to go along with the establishment. Uh, I would actually consider, although I think he's had a come-to-Jesus moment Rush Limbaugh was definitely a neocon. I don't think he is so much now, but he was back then. Don't you think? I haven't tracked him
1: much lately, but he definitely was in the earlier days. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I in, he... my, in my six lectures,
1: number four, I go into in great detail about the neoconservatives, their movement, their history, because I feel oh. that's so vital. And um, one of the keys there is that neoconservatives point to, as their philosophical leader, someone you would never guess. The whole ne- neoconservative philosophy is based on the views of Leon Trotsky.
0: That name rings a bell. I've heard that yes. name somewhere.
1: Communist revolutionary in Russia. Trotsky. Really? Yes. Trotsky worked with Lenin, and then for a short time he worked with Stalin. He was Lenin's partner in the Bolshevik Revolution and in helping create communist Russia. He then... When, when Lenin died and Stalin took over, they soon found they had irreconcilable differences, not about the end goal, but the means to get there. At which point Stalin issued an extermination order, a kill order on Trotsky. Trotsky fled for his life and escaped for a number of years, but was finally tracked down by Stalin's people years later and was killed. But the main philosophical difference between them was, over nationalist versus internationalist perspective, Trotsky, his vision of spreading socialism or communism around the world was through military power that we should use our military might to conquer and transform foreign nations into being socialist states and so the the whole war hawk mentality of neoconservatives
0: they point directly back to trotsky that explains a lot actually yeah That explains why President Bush was so quick to go to war with Iraq and the Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's were so much behind him back then.
1: Yes, exactly. And those beating the war war drums today against Iraq, they're all the neoconservatives. And oftentimes we see neoconservatives under the Democrat banner as well as the Republican banner. In fact, prior to 1972, the neoconservatives were almost all Democrats. And it was about 1972 that they decided to migrate over to the Republican Party.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, that, that explains a lot. Um, gosh, that could be a whole other podcast, couldn't it? <laughs> yes,
1: it is. It's one entire lecture. I'd spend about an hour on that in my six. Is that lecture on series. Uh,
0: YouTube or where? Where would I have to buy it from you?
1: You can you can pull it up on YouTube as well. It's the fourth of okay. my six lectures under that title of The Constitution is the Solution.
0: By the way, uh, I have to bring this up real quick. Uh, YouTube is censoring people. Do you, I hope that you have an alternative website that you're putting these out on. Well, they're
1: on a lot of different websites. The The place it's posted on YouTube is a, an unofficial posting of it, but it's it's out there and people are welcome to watch it.
0: Oh, somebody that else did it?
1: Yeah, but oh. that particular lecture is called Constitutional War Powers and the Enemy Within. And it goes into detail of, first of all, this whole concept of democracy, which my first lecture goes into fully. That's the lecture number one. People have to understand the difference between democracy and republics and why we're not a democracy. And then we springboard in lecture four, the whole idea of spreading democracy, which George Bush was a huge advocate of, is a very dangerous idea because democracy is essentially socialism. And, and so when you're spreading democracy, you are spreading socialism. You're not spreading freedom.
0: By the way, important- uh, let's clarify something here. We are a republic, not a democracy. The word democracy yes. was semantic, if that's the right way to pronounce it. It was basically twisted in the Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson administration saying, oh, we're a democracy because most of America wants this, this, this. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that was a way to get what they wanted. We are a republic. And if we were right. a pure democracy, could you imagine how much anarchy we would have? Do you imagine how much we'd have to go to the voting booths? and? Oh, really, yes. Yeah. It would be
1: very chaotic. <laughs> I have a collection of a few dozen statements from the Founding Fathers on just how much they hated the idea of democracy. Uh, in fact, James Madison is attributed to saying democracy is the most vile form of government. <laughs> and so they wow. didn't have anything to say about democracy. And yet, today, by and large, the American people think we are supposed to be a democracy.
0: Yeah. It's a very dangerous idea. By the way, real quick, uh, have you heard of John B Wells because it sounds like you've been talking about things that he's been talking. Have you heard of John B Wells? Again, that name's not familiar to me. He does a podcast. Stuff, yeah, he does a podcast called Caravan to Midnight. Okay. You have to pay $60 a year, which I do, and he had the DVD And I had it. I never saw it, but I had it at one point called The Enemy Within. It sounds like uh, you and him got the same information somewhere. I guess it's not hard to find, though.
1: Very true. Very true.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about the topic that I think you're the most passionate about right now, at least what I can gather on YouTube and everywhere else is this idea that we need to have a convention, a Mm -hmm. constitutional convention, to balance the budget. Now, I'll admit when I first heard about it, it made sense. I was on board with it until I heard, I think you talk about it on the Alex Jones show when I looked you up back in, what was it, February. And you made sense, actually. So let's go ahead and dive into that.
1: Absolutely. And I I do consider this to be one of the greatest threats to the future of our Constitution today. And so that's one I am very passionate about. Those who are advocating it, just to give you both sides here a little bit, those who are advocating it, as of 2010, they began saying, oh, no, this is not a constitutional convention. This is something else. I'll agree a constitutional convention is dangerous. We're now renaming it. We're going to call it something else. And Prior to that, prior to 2010, nobody had a problem calling it a constitutional convention. So now they're repackaging it, but it still is the same thing. This is a convention that is mentioned in Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, where it talks about how we can make amendments or changes to the Constitution. That that article outlines two ways in which amendments can be created. One is Congress. Congress, through two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate, voting can pass any amendment they want to, and then they have to send it out to the states for ratification. But this method is two-thirds of the state legislatures apply to Congress for a convention, then Congress calls a convention for proposing amendments to the Constitution, which then goes out to the states for ratification. And there are so many things about this topic. We could spend several shows on it as well because I, I literally have probably 12 hours worth of content. We have to focus down on to just a few minutes of what I feel are some of the key things to know.
0: <laughs> oh, wow.
1: But literally this is, is one of the most miss in biggest misinformation campaigns I've ever seen. And it, that really fires me up when people are being intentionally misled with false information, false history that riles me up now, because oh, go ahead. Very simply, and here's a simple litmus test before we get into any of the details. Mm -hmm. In today's political environment, if we were to pull up the anchor of the U.S. Constitution and float to the center of political viewpoint today in the United States and reset our constitutional anchor there, would that constitutional change move us closer to the views of Marx
0: or Madison? Oh, I would say Marx, just based on who's in office.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the average political viewpoint of the American people has moved far to the left, far towards the Marxist endpoint, far more to embracing or at least being somewhat tolerant of socialism and Marxism. And we would clearly change the Constitution away from the very limited government, very liberty-preserving views of the Founding Fathers. So that in and of itself is enough of a litmus test to say, is this really a good idea to do in today's political environment, to make changes to the Constitution? And then as we get into the details, we can talk about various various specific amendment proposals and why they would do that very thing, why they would actually move us away from liberty. One you mentioned was the balanced budget amendment, for example, which I find actually very dangerous,
0: (laughs) surprisingly. Well, I think from what I understand on uh, YouTube, I think where you're coming from is, like you mentioned, who's in office and this, the Congress, okay, the way I understand it, I'm still learning here, so forgive my ignorance, but the way I understand it is the Congress, when they have this convention, or if they do or whatever, um, they can... Tell, they can either show up or they have the state legislatures show up or the state legislatures get to determine who shows up to this convention. Am I correct? Yeah, there's debate on that. And I, I'm not going to say one way or the other,
1: the definitive answer, but on one hand, people are saying Congress can dictate how we choose the delegates. On the other hand, people are saying the state legislatures will decide how the delegates are selected in Arizona, for example, the state legislature passed a rule that if we ever do have this convention, only state legislators can be delegates to the convention. Interesting. But whatever the case, I don't see this, the delegation is going to be people like James Madison or Thomas Jefferson or George Washington today. In, in my, my own state of Montana, we have a lot of great people in politics here, a lot of people I really respect. But I don't see, if Montana state legislature were to choose delegates, I don't see them choosing constitutional conservatives to represent Montana. They're going to be moderates, they're going to be leaning liberal, most likely. And so, and that's really the case in every state across the country. Virtually every state is going to be sending moderates to liberals, somewhere in that range, to represent their states at this convention. When you have a convention of that type of political mindset, that really determines what the outcome is going to be. It's not going to be moving us closer towards liberty when the delegates there don't value those principles of liberty.
0: So let's suppose for a minute that everybody was a strict constitutionalist. Would you be for this? When I say everybody, I'm talking about congressmen, legislatures. Would you be for this convention? (laughs) At that point, there wouldn't be any need to talk about it. (laughs)
1: because we would have a Congress and legislatures that are upholding and enforcing the Constitution, we would have a balanced budget, which by today's numbers, we wouldn't just have a balanced budget. The actual enumeration of powers where Congress is authorized to spend money only accounts for about 20% of total federal expenses today. So Mm -hmm. if you cut away the other 80%, we'd have almost somewhere in the range of 2.8 2.9 trillion dollars of surplus annually that's not just a balanced budget and this is where we compare a balanced budget amendment makes them force enforces them to balance their books supposedly or if we follow the constitution you have this massive almost 3 trillion dollar surplus they don't even compare in solutions there the actually following what the constitution says now is far superior than just trying to get them to balance the books
0: yeah um, do you think? Oh, uh, you mentioned up until 2010 no, uh, nobody had a problem calling it a convention because I listened to this, uh, listened to this idea back in 2018, I believe, is what it was, 2016, somewhere around there. Mark Levin was definitely calling it a constitutional convention. Was he the exception to that rule at that time?
1: Well, what has happened was in 2010. The person who I consider to be the root of the conservative side for the convention is Robert Nadelson. And Robert Nadelson gave a speech, I think it was September if I remember correctly, in 2010, where he basically came out and said, it's time to stop calling it a constitutional convention. We need a new name for it, so let's start calling it something else. Maybe a convention of the states or something like that. Anything but constitutional convention. And that position has been going on since then. You have people like Governor Abbott in Texas, who even years later was still, still calling it a constitutional convention when he was advocating for it. But uh, little by little, you see more of them saying, oh, no, this isn't a constitutional convention. This is something much safer, which is just to try to escape the stigma that came from, well, we defeated them pretty badly years ago when they were pushing for this national constitutional convention. It became almost common knowledge around the country that a constitutional convention is a dangerous idea. So to escape that, they need to repackage it. And that's really what this is about. Not everyone has changed that vernacular yet, but more so than not, you'll see those that are promoting the convention will call it something else.
0: Do you think that this will actually happen? Because honestly, until I heard you, I have not heard talk about this in years. Uh, I shouldn't, since about 2017 or so.
1: A very simple uh, answer your question. Do I think this will happen? Not if I have anything to do with it. <laughs> okay. And, and simply because I do see tremendous amount of money and resources being devoted to this. Uh, just recently, one of the organizations, that's, their actual name is Convention of States Action or something like that. They have a few different names they operate under. But the Convention of States organization has actually been out there purchasing endorsements just recently, they had oh. a fundraiser. They're trying to come up with money to buy Rush Limbaugh's endorsement, and he still turned them down, so I guess he wasn't able to be bought. But quite wow. a few others are on board, and they never did do any kind of a, a public record exposure of, we paid this much for Sean Hannity's endorsement, we paid this much for Mark Levin's endorsement. But having seen them try to do a fundraiser to buy Rush Limbaugh's endorsement, at least hints at the fact that they probably were also paid for their endorsements.
0: Do you think that's why Mark Levin and others are for it, is because they got paid to endorse it?
1: Very likely. I can't, can't document that, though, so I can't say yes or no for sure. With Mark What's... Levin, though, in his case, he created a book. He became a bestseller, so he made a lot of money on this book,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, endorsing a convention. And so he has a lot of money personally writing on that. I don't know if there's also additional endorsement funds coming in from other organizations.
0: Uh, full disclosure here, I do like a lot of what Mark Levin does on his talk show. But uh, yeah, I, based on what I've heard you talk, I can't go with this convention idea either.
1: When it comes to Mark Levin, he's, he's one that I agree with a lot, but there's a yeah. lot of what he says that is very neoconservative. Meaning. As well, I yeah I he can really agree. Show, he rails against the neoconservatives pretty often, but he never defines them, because if he yeah. truly and honestly defined them, it would incorporate a lot of his views as well. So
0: yeah, <laughs> he, although he to Mark Levin's credit, uh, I don't think that he's as bad as he was in the Bush administration. I I really think uh, yeah something happened. Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and Mark Levin I think all had a come to Jesus moment at some point. I think just because the Republicans, the the neocons, and I'm talking about the establishment. I'm not talking about some of the people. But I think they just did not come through with the promises and they all got frustrated, don't you think? Because you don't hear them be nearly as a cheerleader for the Republicans as they were. Yeah. And I, I think
1: that probably has a lot to do with um,
0: public pressure
1: that a lot of times a lot of their own listeners were complaining against how much they were pushing that. And I, I think that's largely what's caused them to back off a bit. Yeah. There's, there's been a lot of this exposure, like I've been doing, exposing who neoconservatives really are. The whole idea of neoconservatives being an enemy is something that was largely spearheaded by the John Birch Society. And so getting that out there into the public discourse has caused a lot of them to try to distance themselves from neoconservatives Whether or not they're willing to actually define what one is is another matter sometimes.
0: (laughs) Okay. I hate to oppose you on something, but I have to bring this up. Uh, Term limits.
1: Okay. Now,
0: this has nothing to do with you as a person. This is just an honest (laughs) disagreement. And it's okay to agree to disagree on this podcast. I've done that before. Uh, Otherwise, I wouldn't have you on. But term limits, I think we need term limits. And I I understand your argument. I heard your argument on a YouTube video. uh, What is it? Voice of Montana. Oh, I was going to talk to you about that. Um, Okay, so your point is, okay, if these people are elected and then they're not elected because they finished out their election, then they just do what they want to. My response to that is, no, because a lot of these people are being bought out by lobbyists. A lot of these people – and I've been a lobbyist. Now, I didn't bribe anybody because the group I was in, we don't support that. But we've gone to lobby uh, on behalf of the blind community for various things. And, yeah, but I, but it's true. They, they If we were to get the term limits, you wouldn't see a lot of that because – believe me, as someone who's been a lobbyist, you know how frustrating it is to go to D.C. and explain to someone over, that's barely new, you, just, you almost sound like a broken record, you would cut a lot of that out. And also, in the political primaries, as you probably know, there is so much money being funneled in that the underdog, let's say, a Republicans running that might be more conservative than the Rhino, that that person generally does not have a chance just because, A, there's not very many voters out there that vote in the primaries. B, the media pays a lot more attention to the establishment. Uh, I read a book about this by, uh, I think it was Stephen Crowder or somebody wrote a book about this. And Fox News didn't even pay attention to the underdog who was running in one of the states. Can't remember the state. So I, I have to disagree with you, but I want to let you speak about it because. You know, obviously, I'm for both sides of an argument, and uh, so go ahead. Well, certainly.
1: I'm going to uh, drop a few names here. (laughs) Okay. A little bit of name dropping. Because the the Founding Fathers had term limits under the Articles of Confederation. Mm -hmm. And when they came to 1787 and they're drafting the new Constitution, they started talking about this and felt that it was a great error to have term limits on Congress, for example. And some of their explanations are what changed my mind on it because initially I felt term limits were a good idea. And one of the things they talk about was you're taking away the inducements to good behavior. That when, let's say I'm your US Senator and I'm limited to two terms as a US Senator. For my my first term, my entire purpose is to make sure I get a second term. (laughs) And if the system's functioning properly where the American people, are holding their elected officials accountable to obeying their oath of office, to obeying the Constitution, protecting their liberties, and so on, then I had better do that. That's how Danny Reberg felt. As we were starting to publish his voting records across Montana, how he squared with the Constitution, he quickly changed his voting to be much better in following the Constitution. If I get to my second term now, I have no possibility of re-election. And so this is what the founders pointed to when we take away that possibility of regaining that office, we take away their reason to listen to the American people, to listen to their constituents. And so now in my second term, I have no reason to listen to you as my constituent because there's nothing you can do for me. However, there is a group that could do something for me and that would be the lobbyists, the special interest groups. I know that within... By the end of my, my second term, I will be out of a job in the U.S. Senate. Maybe I get to have a lobbyist job if I do your bidding in the meantime or whatever. And so they felt that it actually brings in a lot more harm by causing someone to have no reason to listen to their constituents. In fact, one of the founders' statements was, you're telling him, make hay while the sun shines. <laughs> I love some of their flowery verbiage that way. But what ends up happening literally, and we have to recognize who term limits are actually limiting, they're actually limiting the people. They're limiting your choice to reelect your congressman, your senator, or whomever. You no longer have the choice to reelect them. And again, this is, if we're using the system properly, where the American people actually hold their elected officials accountable, we're taking away the power of those people to do that when they are when your senators, your congressmen, whomever are are limited in their terms. And so this actually reduces the the power of the people. In fact, Thomas Jefferson said, if we feel that the people are not exercising their power with a wholesome discretion, the solution is not to take that power from them, but to inform their discretion by education. This is the true corrective of abuses of constitutional power. What he's saying is, We don't wanna take away from the people the power to elect whomever they wish. We just need to help them do it better. We need to teach them how to hold their elected officials accountable. We need to teach them the limits of the Constitution. Because in places where we have term limits, California for example, it hasn't created representation that follows the Constitution better. It hasn't created a limited government perspective in, in their state legislature. It just means you have a faster turnover of your socialist leaders there, (laughs) which hasn't helped them any. And so the real solution, as Thomas Jefferson's saying, is to inform their discretion by education. We need to inform the people. That's why my mission has become spread knowledge of the constitution, inform the people of the limits of power that Congress is supposed to uphold. Because as we hold them accountable to that, that's where the changes really are made. We don't see significant improvements in areas where we have implemented term limits, but we do see significant improvement where we have areas where we've instilled a love of the Constitution and those people began holding their elected officials accountable.
0: I am listening and I'm I'm respecting your view. Here's the problem though. Um, These lobbyists, yeah, you're right. If I ran and I left office because I finished up my term limits. Sure, I could go out and get a job as a lobbyist. Don't you think maybe that's where we ought to pass a law in this country? Just how much, just how, uh, how do I phrase it? just to limit how much power lobbyists have? I, I see
1: that that is, that can be a problem. Although as yourself, having been a lobbyist, yeah. If we if we tie up the hands of lobbyists too much, there could be problems there
0: as well. Well, I'm thinking more about the bribery. I'm thinking more about taking the politicians out for dinner. We we could definitely put a stop to a lot of that.
1: To a degree, there's always going to be ways to do it under the table. <laughs>
0: uh, and then here's another thing is, is I and again, I I respect your viewpoint here and I see your point. But the other, what about, okay, we had President Roosevelt running for, what, three terms. He would have right. easily ran a fourth. Just think of what President Obama could have done, because you know he would have ran as many terms as he wants, as he wanted. Right. Uh, what do you do in a case like that? Do you, are you against term limits as the president, for the president? Because we could have had some pretty bad years had these presidents gone on.
1: It's true. That's true. And and that's one of those where, honestly, we could we could go back and forth on the presidential position. I, I'm not uh-huh. sure it has helped us a lot. Yeah. But the real concern I have is Congress. And the reason why is Congress is supposed to be the ones that are closest to the people. And term limits separate them to a degree from the people. The president isn't really supposed to be representing the people. That's why he's elected by an electoral college, for example. So in that regard, it's less of an issue. You, you get into judges, that's another issue entirely. I, I see huge dangers if we start having term limits on, on for example, the Supreme Court. That's an entirely different discussion. Yeah. The concern the founders expressed for term limits was for that body of people that represent the people themselves, that being Congress. And I totally agree with them on that one. We might be able to discuss and debate merits of term limits on the president, I don't see it necessarily being as as dangerous and harmful in the same ways as it has has been historically when they had it in Congress and under the Articles of Confederation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Look at the judges, though. This is an interesting one. Let's say, for example, we had 12-year term limits on the U.S. Supreme Court. Yep. What that would mean is that every four years, every presidential term, you'd have to have one third of the U.S. Supreme court replaced. Sure. Yeah. So yep. every presidential term you'd be selecting four new judges. What would that mean for Obama's second term? How many judges did Obama appoint total in his entire two years or two, two terms?
0: I believe I want to say two, wasn't it? I know. So,
1: yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was two. So instead yeah. of two, he would have had four in his first term, four more in his second term. What that right. would mean, literally, is that every president who serves a second term will totally own the Supreme Court by the second term, which would be very dangerous. Yeah. Again, back to Obama. If he had more than half of the Supreme Court justices appointed by him, you have Kagan's and Sotomayor's as the dominant force, the majority in the Supreme Court, what would he not be able to get away with at that point? And so it's an entirely different argument when you talk about the other branches of the federal government, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and so on. But on the judicial one, I see that would be extremely dangerous to have term limits there as
0: well. I'd have to think about the Supreme Court. You bring up a good point. I I have never thought about, I think somebody did, wasn't there an amendment to have a 10-year limit on the Supreme Court or something?
1: There have been proposals like that. I've seen several different ones.
0: You yeah, have to think about that because you actually bring up a good point. Although the the counteract that I would say is well, a lot of these judges are being bought off anyway. Uh, John Roberts could be one of them. He seems to sway right. back and forth. Um, so I could probably see both sides of that argument easily.
1: The founders' vision for the Supreme Court was stability, something yeah. that doesn't change rapidly, doesn't have massive swings with public opinion, and so on. Whereas the short term like that, like a 10 or 12 year term, would do just the opposite. It would create a very volatile Supreme Court. And by the way... Massive um, swings back and forth.
0: Yeah. And by the way, um, the president could get a lot of other things done. You know, these Supreme Court nominees do take some time, especially in today's world. Oh, I saw so-and-so. Yeah. Yeah. The
1: whole Kavanaugh hearing scenario. Oh, yeah.
0: Yep. Um. All right, we're going to end this podcast soon because the main criticism I get is your podcasts are too long. Well, yeah, I'm trying to, but there's so much to talk about. Um, Let's bring some things down uh, to a personal level here. I am a blind person, and I'll admit I I have been, you know, uh, being blind in the system, meaning, you know, the state has paid for my college and things like that. And it's an issue that I go back and forth on, you know, I don't know how much you know about the disabled community or how familiar you are with vocational rehabilitation, uh, which I am on. And look, uh, we're in the society that we're in, uh, some of the equipment I have, not all, but some of it is highly expensive. I had to get some help there from the government. Uh, there was no way around it. How would you go about, uh, Getting rid of Voc Rehab, I'm just curious about your viewpoint because I'm actually glad some of these programs existed for me. I don't know how I would have been able to afford them. But then I go back and forth because, uh, I'll I'll be honest, I would like to see states get out of the business of training blind people to be independent and more have that geared towards a private sector like the National Federation of the Blind Training Center in Louisiana.
1: Right. You know, one of the great difficulties we face in entering this kind of a discussion is that we are so far removed from true liberty, from a true free market economy, from an environment where the government isn't intruding into almost every aspect of our lives, that it's difficult to even imagine what it would be like to have true economic freedom and true charitable freedom, where the various charities and communities are free to serve, and that we're not so heavily taxed that the people are able to be even more generous. Now, I've mm-hmm. seen a number of studies that show that the American people, when it comes to charitable donations, we are by far the most generous in the world, even with these circumstances that I'm talking about, even mm-hmm. with the really excessive taxation we have from state and federal level, especially on the federal level. but. How much more would we be able to do that if the government wasn't doing it for us? What happens when government comes in and starts doing a program they take over? If we're going to have government programs that take care of the poor or the needy in one way or another, a lot of the charities end up being forced out by competition of government. How How do you compete with forced taxpayer
0: dollars? And so... Well, you Get do bring there. up a good point because I have a friend who's in the Lions Club, and he yeah. tells me this all the time: our donations are getting smaller and smaller by the year. And, and I yet, think I think you're right. It goes back. Well, the government takes care of it. I I, I think you you have a very valid point. And yet, at the same time, my my uh, second,
1: or actually my third son, just did an eagle project. His eagle project in the Billings community was to collect shoes. For the men's shelter for the men's homeless shelter because they have a great deficiency on shoes for the men there oh and so he he did flyers throughout throughout the community and and then went out on a saturday morning with a bunch of other young scouts and they collected the the shoes they sent a flyer out several days earlier saying saturday morning we'll be by to pick up shoes please set out any men's shoes you have that still have some wear life in them that you're not needing it was amazing. You'd go through a few houses, there'd be nothing there. And then you'd come to a house and the the whole porch is covered in bags of shoes. And it was just, it was really touching. Were they nice shoes or were they, were
0: they
1: good quality shoes or? Really good and even expensive shoes in some cases. Really? Pretty good condition. It was amazing. We ended up turning in, I think 140 pair of shoes to the the men's shelter from that morning collection. It was a huge pile. It totally filled our minivan. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's incredible. And so my my main point there is that the American people are very generous when we have, number one, economic freedom and prosperity, which we still have quite a lot of, even with all the government intervention. But number two, when there aren't government programs that are competing with that and making us feel like, oh, we don't need to do that. The government's going to take care of it. The American people are incredibly generous. And I wish we could just have a glimpse into what life would be like if, (laughs) because it's so hard to see from where we are now. Well,
0: that leads me to a question that I wanted to ask you, and I'm actually glad we're having this conversation, because this is something I, as a blind person, struggle with, Uh, because I'm glad that these government programs are out there, but then I go back and forth. I I see some of the corruption that has happened in uh, voc rehab, for example, of Utah, a lot of corruption. Fortunately, I think they're getting rid of it, but it's, it's an issue that I go back and forth, but I was reading, uh, I don't know if you are listen to much talk radio. Uh, this was back when Glenn Beck was a phenomenal talk show host. I just happened to pick up one of his books, download it to my, uh, braille note taker years ago and decided I'd read it arguing, arguing against idiots. Have you read that book? i've not I've heard of it but i've not I've not read it I read something that stuck out to me um, in you may know this in eighteen eighty eight there was a massive flood in Texas, and most of the lawmakers I don't know who, but according to this book that I read, most of the lawmakers and the public wanted President Cleveland to sign a bill that would send some money to Texas, and President Cleveland, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said the church or the government is not a distribution center of wealth. That is up to the churches and charities, and according to what I read, and I have to believe Glenn Beck here, because I'm sure he had staff, well, I know he had staff do the fact-checking, that they got a lot of money through the American people, I'm sure churches. Now, I don't know if the LDS church donated anything or not. and Who knows? But if let's say that that were to happen today, I don't think that we would be equipped emotionally or mentally to do that because people have been counting on government for so long. People would just be, oh, you're heartless, you're mean, you're this. And uh, what would you say to that? Because I thought about that. Can can you imagine a president who would go
1: on the evening news and and do a public you know press conference and say number 1 according to the constitution we don't have the power to steal your money and give it to whomever we think needs it but number 2 as your president i implore you to voluntarily donate to this cause if you feel so impressed and and that kind of a thing
0: oh. and to, to he, that president spending, would get crucified. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, but I think that would really resonate with the American people. Oh, certainly the, the liberals and, and the moderates would hate him for it. But mm-hmm. I think the American people generally would, that would resonate with them. That I want to respect the power that has and has not been delegated. But on the other hand, there's a need here and I want to point it out. And I want to encourage, and here are the various organizations that are doing fundraisers for this and that are helping lead the charge for the the relief here. And he could certainly use his position to advocate without using any power of government that's unjustly usurped unconstitutionally. I I would love to see that, and I'd love to see the backlash that would come from the, the liberal media on it. And and there's there's always talk of impeachment, and and fortunately, the founders were wise in making the impeachment uh, bar fairly high, that it has to go through impeachment in the House and then conviction in the Senate. And uh, frankly, I think that happens too rarely. <laughs> I think that the the U.S. House and Senate needs to have a little bit more courage to impeach when it's actually necessary. But. Anyway,
0: that's just my view. So let's talk about another issue, uh, civil rights. Um, What do you think should have been done with civil rights back in the 60s? Because let's face it, uh, we, not you and I, but we as a country were despicable to African-Americans down south and uh, the government came in and said you can't do that. And, uh, President Eisenhower put the military down south and seems to have worked as far as stopping discrimination. What would you have proposed, though? I- I'm curious. You know, I, I really don't know. That That's one of those where,
1: just to, to establish a, a general principle, government rarely does anything well. <laughs> government rarely, rarely does anything better than the public sector would, or the private sector, excuse me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, on the one hand, you can outlaw speaking against people, you can outlaw this or that, but it really comes down to needing to change the hearts and minds of people when it comes to racism or whatever else that way. And, and sometimes I wonder if the heavy hand of the government saying we're going to put a forcible stop to these things doesn't actually foment more of it.
0: Well, here's a here's an issue, and I can speak from experience. Uh, I was born in 1980, so I was born on the tail end of discrimination against blind people, and, and believe me, it did exist when I was a kid. Uh, still does today, but not as much. Uh, what I'm talking about, oh, you can't go down this water slide because well, you're blind. Oh, excuse me, I've been going down water slides for years, and... I've been jumping off of high dives. Now you're telling me I can't go down this water slide. Wet and wild in Florida. This is back in wow. 1990. Yeah. Uh, now, because of the Americans with Disabilities Act I'm a, and other things, there is no way a park could get away with that. Uh, and I'm actually glad that those things happen just because it's giving people such as myself more opportunity to, do things, enjoy life, get employment or whatever. So what would you have proposed? Because this is something uh, yeah. that I kind of go back and forth on as far yeah. as. And that's that's really just, that's a tough one.
1: That's one that I honestly have given a lot of thought to and would love to hear in great detail two sides of an argument on that. I, I don't really have enough background to be able to make either side of the argument.
0: Okay, I'll, I'll give you my side. Uh, and, and again, I am not a leftist, for the record, so don't go around <laughs> when I give my of the arguments, oh, uh, Kevin's a leftist, he's out to destroy it. No, 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 stop. Uh, okay, I am glad uh, that the ADA is passed just because it has given deaf and blind people a chance to move up in society. Uh, for example... When I go to hotels, it is really easy for me to get around independently because the numbers are brailled. Now, numbers are brailled because the government stepped in and said, "Listen, uh, you've got to do this so that blind people can get around successfully." Now, we could probably debate, "Oh, there is an ulterior motive, maybe," but the outcome was good, at least for me. And look at what it's done for wheelchairs. So, I think there is a place for that kind of legislation. Now you and I could uh, agree to disagree and that's fine. I'd actually be interested in hearing your side of the argument if, you're, if you have, because uh, I'd be interested to talk to someone who is anti that kind of legislation uh, just to see what they would think.
1: Yeah. And, and personally, I don't have a real strong opinion on that. The okay. general principles are that, that government generally doesn't do better than what the private sector could. I'd be interested as well to see what types of private sector proposals could have done as much or maybe even more. I don't know. That, that'd be a good one. I'd, it'd be fun to see if we can find someone that does have some strong
0: concept on the other side of that argument. This is why I wanted to have you on because I really think we need this conversation. Um, because when someone says, Oh, I'm anti this they hate disabled people. Well, let's not jump to that conclusion. (laughs) We disagree on policy. Well, it's like the old Uh, statement that if you don't want
1: government funded and operated public schools that you must hate education. Well, no, uh, Yeah, (laughs) I'm not against having education. I'm against having government running the education. That's two totally different things. So yeah, in the same way, I'm, I'm certainly not against having those types of provisions. I'm curious to see if there could be proposals that would do it better than the government has done. I always entertain that idea. But again, it's not something that I have a lot of background in or or history of study.
0: Uh Yeah, I'd be... I'll be honest, uh, us as disabled people benefit, you go to a lot of these hotels, they have uh, bars and bath and bathtubs and showers so that people in wheelchairs can hold on while they're taking a shower and, or whatever. Now, some of these places have had those in long before the ADA, but you have to admit the ADA really pushed it. So um, They're everywhere now. I, I'm glad – I hate to say, I'm glad that that bill passed, just to give us a head ahead in society. But I think we could have a healthy discussion about it.
1: Yeah, and of course, the question that really can't be answered is where would we be today if the free market were left to solve that problem? Would it have gotten to where we are today as quickly? Would it have gotten there at all, or would it have done better? And, And that one. We can speculate, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, be, again, that's one of those things where generally, if there's enough demand for something, the the market's going to adjust and adapt. That if one hotel has those types of facilities, another one doesn't, it's obvious which one you're going to go to.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, th- this is why. I keep my podcast. I don't have people invest in it or I, I would welcome an advertiser, but they, uh, they'd have to know if I cover an, unco- an uncomfortable subject for them, they have the right to revoke the advertising. Right. Cause I'm not changing. This is why I have the podcast. I try to be, and I hope this podcast was very conversational.
1: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now, oh, good. Uh, before we leave here, um, what do you like the most about being a member of the church?
1: As a member of the church, I couldn't hear you very well there.
0: Oh yeah. What what do you what is your favorite part about being a member of the church?
1: Well that's an interesting question.
0: <laughs> you know, to me It's
1: really kind of the same whether being a member of the church or member of other organizations. The ability to share and learn from one another, the ability to strengthen one another, the ability to take care of one another. One of the things that I, I love best about the church itself is when it's functioning properly in a local ward or, or stake, we really do care for one another. Where, here I live in Montana. I don't have any family within hundreds of miles of here. And yet all those around me in my church family help care for one another like family. And and so I feel secure in moving to some remote place in the country that I've never been to, knowing that I'm going to have family there within the church. Mm -hmm. And and there's just something really reassuring about that. Now uh, things yep. I love about the gospel is an entirely different question than the church, the church being the structure and the, the gospel being principles of eternity that way. Mm-hmm. But as far as the church organization goes, that that's really its purpose is for us to strengthen one another in our testimony as well as in temporal needs.
0: Yeah. Oh, I was going to ask you one more question. Uh, Does it bother you that the church does not get political in general conference and things like that, like Ezra Taft Benson, J. Reuben Clark used to? Do you wish we would go back to that being the political activist that you are? (laughs) Well,
1: I would have to say that there's got to be some wisdom behind it. And I, I suspect there was actually a statement, I think it was from President Benson, where he said if the church were to implement some very strong political advocacy program like that, that it would divide the church asunder. And I think he's probably right about that, that if they were very outspoken, strongly in one direction politically, that it would cause a great divide within the church. And that's not really their purpose. Their purpose is to strengthen.
0: Do you think that's because the church is worldwide, and let's say somebody from England might view government the way differently than you and I? Well,
1: there is that. But there are also those within my own ward and stake that I know that strongly differ from a lot of the views that had been expressed by early church leaders politically. Mm-hmm. And and they probably would be very uncomfortable being members of the church actively if that was something that was still very actively coming from the church headquarters today. And so I think even within our own communities, there are, there are a lot of us who would not be comfortable within the church, if it were strongly advocating the, the, what I consider to be eternal principles of liberty that were advocated in the earlier days.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned uh, that quote from president Benson, because I did hear, Oh, I want to ask you two more questions. Uh, Don't worry. I'll get you off here soon. Um, (laughs) It's interesting that you bring that up because President Benson gave a talk, I believe, in 1987 at BYU, the Constitution of Heavenly Banner. I'm sure you've heard it. Oh, yes, yes. And he did say that it will not be the church leaders who save the Constitution. Do you remember that part? Yes, I do. Yeah, so maybe that's what he was referring to then.
1: Yeah, he really put the responsibility on the individual members, not the church leadership, that it's up to each of us to do what we can do to advocate for preserving, protecting the constitution.
0: Absolutely. Um, now Joseph Smith said, or supposedly there's now even a a dispute whether he even said it or not, (laughs) though he must've said something like it, that the U S Constitution will hang by a thread and the elders of Israel save it. Now historians are debating whether he even said that, do you have any insight on that or interpretation?
1: Not really. Not really. I, I think that whether or not he said it, we're seeing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's truly come to pass that it, it is truly hanging in the balance today. Uh, some of the question of what he said next as well, there have been several different versions of what he said thereafter that it will be saved by or might be saved by or if it's saved by <laughs> anyone. Well, so,
0: he, he must have said something to that effect. Because right. Yeah.
1: I, I suspect so. I suspect so. But the one thing I do see is that we do have a responsibility. In fact, one of my favorite statements came from J. Reuben Clark, where he talks about in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, says, I, the Lord, established this constitution by the hands of wise men whom I raised up into this very purpose. And then he references that and says, this says to me that the constitution as it is as much from our Heavenly Father as are the rest of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was his hand that he put on it. And he, and he authorized it. He endorsed it. And that he even said, whatsoever is more or less than this cometh of evil. And he says, when that's, when that's my feeling, I'm not going to go very far from it. <laughs> we should yeah. be a whole. And so I, I feel that's really a, a statement to every church member that we should be learning and defending the Constitution. We each have a personal responsibility to do so
0: yeah well uh is there anything else that uh oh by the way stick around for a minute while after i end this uh, is there anything else you want to cover that i didn't cover
1: i think we got a good start into it we also mentioned a few other topics we could spend an entire show on Oh, sure yeah (laughs) that's a, a good good start today though anyway
0: All right. Well, uh, I will talk to you later, folks. And I will promise I will try to get more episodes out, even uh, if I have to go solo. uh, Like I said, I've just been busy trying to find a day job and other things. But I will talk to you later, folks.